And most of his family still lives in that area. One of you, also from that area, obviously. Um, his favorite hobby is scrambling. Anyone else favorite hobby, scrambling? None of you know what it is. It's off-trail hiking and climbing. Uh, not a lot. That doesn't happen on the beach very much, but in Seattle it must be, must be pretty popular. He is obnoxiously crazy about his three kids. That's actually what he wrote. He's obnoxiously crazy about his three kids. <laughs> He gets his 11-year-old out of bed every time there's a lunar eclipse or a meteor shower in the middle of the night. He was the captain of his high school wrestling team, and he will be demonstrating some of those moves this morning. <laughs> he met his wife, uh, Misha, am I pronouncing that right? In junior high, and they started dating in high school. At one point, he talked himself out of 12 traffic tickets in a row. There is an issue there uh, of justice um, and responsibility. Uh, and he didn't say how many tickets he's gotten since then, but we'll let him answer. Will you please welcome someone everyone loves, Dr. Eric Severson. Well, I'd like to... Uh Make sure that I'm, I'm on okay, right? Good. I'd like to express my thanks to uh, Chaplain Corey McPherson and the ENC Spiritual Development Team for opening this pulpit to me and for the opportunity to share a few words uh, with you this morning. Sometime, Corey, will have to tell you the story about when we were in a preaching contest against each other. The punchline of the story is that we both lost, uh, but I'll leave that to him some other time. Uh, over the years, I've stood in this pulpit many times. I've had the honor of opening God's Word with you many times, and I still tremble as I think about the responsibility that falls to me in these moments as I get to share and reflect with you during this time of corporate worship in this particular community that I love. This morning, I don't really have a sermon for you, um, and that doesn't mean I have a lecture for you either. I, what I have um, will include talking about things that are in the Bible, and it will surely also include components of what might make its way into a lecture. But instead, my intention this morning is to be more testimonial than anything else. Perhaps more accurately, what I'd like to do this morning is offer a kind of public lament, a lamentation, a prolonged meditation on something that has been nagging me most of my life, that I've been looking for ways to talk about and express for most of my life. In fact, it's this persistent pain, this pang, or maybe we could call it a dis-ease, that has undermined and energized almost everything that I do. It's asking no small thing of you to expose you to this aspect of my life, this thorn in my side, this disease. The danger, of course, is that I have a sickness that I should keep to myself, that I shouldn't share with you, that I should contain within myself. So it's with a kind of tentative wager that I hope sharing my struggles can do more good than harm, since I expect that it will do both. I speak today not from a position of knowledge or expertise. I suppose I have some of that, and in my classes I try to help my friends and students understand the world they live in a little better, understand the text of the Bible a little better. These are things I endeavor to do as I teach, but that's not my mission today. Today I want to talk to you about an ache a discomfort, a thorn in my side that's grown familiar for many years of gnawing and twisting at my soul. I hope my reflections today are appropriate for this Lenten season, just begun. 
Though raised in a Nazarene church, which paid very little attention to any high church themes like Lent, I've come to find great comfort in the honesty of this Lenten season. It's really during Lent, and especially during the holidays, best called Holy Days, of Good Friday and Holy Saturday, that my sickness receives some measure of relief. These are to be days, Lent, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, of authenticity. These are days in which we remove our masks, as we heard so powerfully invited on Wednesday. It's a time for confessing sins. It's a time for mending broken relationships. These are days when there is something holy about being broken, about being wounded, about being incomplete, about being haunted by doubt or despair. So when Lent begins, I feel a little bit of room to breathe. And maybe during this season, I can talk about my spiritual sickness without looking quite so out of place. And if you don't share my despair, my thorn, then at least I can offer you the Lenten exercise of listening to somebody wrestle in agony and anxiety before the holiness of the triune God. My pang, this sickness that I want to talk to you about today, is sometimes easy to ignore. When I was the captain of my high school wrestling team, doesn't mean I was all that good at wrestling, but I was the captain, uh, I injured my shoulder, one of my last matches, um, a separation of something in my shoulder. And ever since, I'll occasionally move my arm in a certain way, and it will hurt again, and a pang will sort of run down my arm and into my body, and I'll have a kind of vivid memory of this injury uh, when it originally happened. This kind of pain is, is an is a instant drawback to that moment. It, it instantly pulls me back to the, the first time I felt that pain, a very specific portion of my shoulder. The pain that I speak of this morning is more persistent than that, but it works much the same way. Occasionally, it will, it will flare up, and I'll become acutely aware of it, and it's a sickness that causes despair. I would gladly trade this uh, for a bum shoulder, or maybe I wouldn't. At any rate, it is a sickness that I find myself often easy, easily able to explain away. The way we tell ourselves that we're not sick if a disease or a cold or a flu strikes us at a moment when it's very inconvenient for us to stop and rest. I often tell myself that I'm coming down with some allergies when I'm really getting a cold from not sleeping enough. I become most acutely aware of this pang that I speak to you about this morning when I read the Bible. And this is trouble, of course, because Christians are supposed to read their Bibles, spend time reading and reflecting on the text. I think if it weren't for the pesky words of Scripture, and particularly the pesky teaching of Jesus, that I might become relatively and routinely unaware of this dis-ease. Though there are moments, other moments, besides when I read the Bible, that this despair grips my soul. Earlier, we listened to the story of the prodigal son. First, crafted and delivered almost 2,000 years ago by Jesus. The story is brilliant in more ways than we have time to explore this morning. It's a masterpiece of storytelling. The story plays out with many of the natural rhythms of any good narrative. There's the tension that's created as the restless son gathers his inheritance and says no to his family and yes to a life of frivolous and unwise squandering. The story is clearly crafted to demonstrate the consequences of sin, the inevitable crawling back that everyone endures when they wander away in direct uh, um, defiance of the Father. 
The story is powerful. It's good enough to bring a tear to your eye, especially if you have experiences like those of the prodigal son. There's so much to be said for this moving artistry in the tale, as each detail, including the running of the father who comes with reckless abandon down the road to greet the prodigal returning. So much we could talk about about this story in which uh, we could retell over and over again in different periods of history, different times, different cultures. It's a universal story about wandering away and about the absurd welcome of a father, a God who runs. Perhaps the most brilliant turn in this story, or at least the one that twists the thorn in my side, is, happens in the final verses, in which Jesus narrates the frustration and the confusion of the older son. The older son, when approached, outlines a mighty list of grievances. His beef seems to be legitimate. It's hardly fair that the expensive feast that's being thrown for the wayward sibling involves the the family ring, the fatted calf, extravagant expenses when he and his friends haven't been afforded the luxury of so much as a bouncy house. When I first read this story and its line about the sulking brother, I just felt sorry for the guy. Why doesn't he understand? All you got to do is hug your dad. But now when I hear this story, the thorn twists in my side. It burns, and my sickness and my despair are heightened. You see, I am that guy, the man in the margins, clutching my trophies and my goodness. I have labored many long years to please the Father, and then so often find myself looking from the outside in as the events of holiness unfold behind me. Now, it wouldn't be much of a thorn if it only cut me when I read this one story. I could just work my way around Luke 15 and all would be well. But instead, it feels like Jesus is after this experience, trying to twist this same dis-ease into everyone who hears these stories. At least that's my impression. Consider Matthew 25. Remember the tale where the Son of Man separates the sheep and the goats? And neither the sheep nor the goats have any idea that they are serving or denying the Son of Man when they attend to the least of these? The goats are cast out into the darkness still wondering, when were you hungry and we didn't feed you? When were you sick and we didn't attend to your sickness? When were you in prison and we didn't visit you? Their fatal error, like that of the prodigal's elder son, elder brother, is not wrong belief. It's not wrong politics. It's not wrong morality. He's got morality right, and Jesus makes it clear in the parable. He's never disobeyed. They just didn't get the point. You see, I am the goat, the one who prays the right prayers, the one who does the right things, the one who misses the face of Christ, and the one who is poor, and the one who is destitute, and the thorn burns in my side. Or what about those two men? You know, the ones who pass by in Jesus' tale about the Good Samaritan. They are righteous and God-fearing. Jesus makes sure that we don't think of these two people who pass by the wounded man in the ditch as cutthroats, people on their way to make money and ignoring the suffering of others. They're a Levite and a priest. These are good, decent, stay-at-home-and-help-dad-plow-the-fields kind of guys. They find their duty and they fulfill it. That's what priests and Levites do. 
Yet the event of holiness, the event of holiness in the story of the Good Samaritan, not happens, it happens not when they're priesting or Leviting or in their everyday journeying down the road. Holiness is the event that happens in their wake, miles behind them, perhaps even despite them. You see, I am the priest. I am the Levite. I am the one oblivious to the event of holiness that I missed that happens instead in my wake. So on to my central point in my reflections this morning. The stories of Jesus, at least to me, seem designed to repeatedly show that the wisest among us are the real fools. And if I'm right about that, no wonder reading this Bible, these stories, gives somebody like me despair. You see, I've spent my entire life trying to become wise in the things of God from childhood forward. I've strained for ordination, for masters of divinity degrees, for a PhD, and for so many other markers of someone who is wise in the things of God. But the stories of Jesus repeatedly remind me that the wisest among us are the real fools. They're designed, I think, to make me feel like a camel trying to squeeze my life through the eye of a needle. And as I hear and read these words, I feel my supposed acts of goodness, my degrees, and my knowledge hanging like a millstone around my neck. And there seems to be no pathway between where I am and the warm embrace of the prodigal and the father. Now, I'm not trying to invite you to generate some kind of special experience. I don't think holiness is something that a person possesses or contains internally. For me, holiness is an event. It's the event of the kingdom of God happening in the banality of this world. It's not something you are. It's something in which you participate by grace. The sickness that I'm speaking about today relates to the battering that I take every time I open the pages of Holy Scripture. Time after time, I'm the fool in the story, standing bewildered in the corner, clutching my medals, my degrees, my diplomas, my plaques, my goodness, my righteousness. For some, it may be easier to brush aside these stories, this disheartening theme that seems to arise from the teachings of Jesus. In fact, maybe I'm the weirdo that takes too seriously what is actually a minor ailment, when my wife was in nursing school, she took pathology courses. And when she was in these classes, she was sure that I had, or she had every disease that was listed in the book. Every cough, every pain, they were all indicators of some lethal disease that we needed to rush to the emergency room to have treated. Maybe that's what I'm doing here. Maybe I am picking up on a malady that's unique to me. Maybe it's trivial to these stories. I certainly was taught all too often, or maybe very often, that these stories were, I should find myself placing the prodigal as the hero of these stories and myself in his shoes. But anymore, when I read these stories, I, I go different places and the thorn twists again in my side. So the disease, this disease that seems to be the intention of Jesus in these parables, maybe it is just a hiccup or the sniffles. Maybe I'm the one who can't stop making a mountain out of a molehill. But when it comes to this particular sickness, my blood churns and boils within me. I get this clammy feeling that I'm marching along with the oblivious self-assurance of one who has dismissed the doctor's voicemails and pretended that the cancer's not eating me alive. 
And then over and over again come the stories. The stories that make me spiritually look a lot like the Pharisees. The stories that put me in the kitchen preparing lunch while Jesus teaches Mary in the next room. You can ignore them for a while. You can ignore the fact that you see in the mirror the menacing judgment of the righteous men who threw the adulterous woman on the ground before Jesus. I can temporarily fool myself into thinking I'm not sick or that the sickness I have leads not to death. And in my delusion, I can count my blessings and I can praise God that I am not one of the sinners and not like them. I can pretend I'm the wandering prodigal falling heavy into the arms of the Father, but I am not. I am scared. I'm confused. I'm the angry older son that sulks in the background. I'm confused because I did what I was told. I followed the rules. I kept my promises. How can it be that I am the villain of these stories? And I cling to my Eric Severson was a participant in righteousness trophies in the corner, and I discover to my horror that they smell like dung. So maybe Lent is about honesty. Maybe it's high time for me to get serious about the fact that I'm sick, that I am at dis-ease, and that my disease isn't something that I can fix. The harder I try, in fact, the worse it gets. This my friends, is the quagmire of sin. It's like a quicksand that punishes you for your efforts to escape. Righteousness is a trap, my friends, when it's mistaken for the point. Much better than righteousness is holiness, which happens explosively in moments that our righteousness might just make us miss. The more righteous you make yourself, the further from grace you may be. And perhaps that's the point. Maybe the danger is highest for those who labor the longest and the steadiest. Perhaps this twisting of a knife in my side, this thorn, is a gift, a brokenness and a despair that are necessary so that I might know the meaning of love. And what should I make of the embarrassing Protestant and Nazarene tendency to ignore lament, to bypass Lent, to hunt for Easter eggs on the hallowed day of Holy Saturday. This sickness is perhaps reinforced by the fact that my every orientation pulls me in the direction of the grace uh, that is my only balm, and my every orientation in the world pulls me also away from it. I'm yanked between the concepts of fairness, hard work, and just rewards. And the remarkable events of holiness that interrupt fairness, fairness, decimated by the embrace of the father and the prodigal son. I'm pulled between my important jobs of grading papers, assigning points, failing students. <laughs> it happens every once in a while. I'm torn between my projects of grading and working and laboring and the logic of the kingdom of God which defies point giving, the assignment of credit for good deeds and hard work. I try to compete in a rigorous academic field of philosophy and theology, all the while realizing that my best publication, the best accomplishments, my best academic presentation 
is more like rubbish in my hands. I've resigned myself, I suppose, to this sickness, this Lenten sickness. Though I think the ache has been transformed and transfigured over time. Salvation for an older son like me is tricky business. The urge is to struggle, to seek greatness, to be all I can be, to perform and aspire, to succeed and to become. But in the inverted logic of the kingdom of God, these earnest roads are not the right ones. They are not the first ones. They are the thrashing of my arms and legs in quicksand. They give me the sensation that I am saving myself, even as they most assuredly redouble my despair, deepen my sickness, hasten my descent into the mire. The urgency to be good is a sickness that leads to death. Still, not all is lost. There is a disease and a sickness that leads elsewhere, otherwise than the one that leads to death. This is a sickness that leads to a humility that must itself become a gift. It's not sufficient simply to humble oneself before the task of being holy. Even humility is a gift of grace. Perhaps in its most obvious manifestation, such humility means that I am rendered unreasonably responsible in the face of every neighbor. To stop struggling to be good is to revel instead in the goodness of God, in the goodness of the other person, to wrap one's life around love for and service for the neighbor, the stranger, the alien, the outsider, the foreigner, the monstrous, the enemy. That's got to be the most profound irony, that the one who would be part of the holiness of God must give up the prize of obtaining holiness as a spiritual plateau or achievement. No wonder the teachings of Jesus twist the thorn and deepen my awareness of my sickness. And as if to show that this is part of his ministry, an intentional part of his ministry, the sickness of which Jesus makes us so acutely aware appears in some of the most crucial hours of his own life. Just before uh, we, we uh, listened to a portion of the story of Jesus on the ground in Gethsemane, where he sweats drops of blood, where he begs for the cup of suffering to be taken from him, where he struggles to align his will with that of the Father. It is in that scene, those moments, that seem to me paradigmatic for the Lenten season, it reminds me that my sickness, my thorn, is not my enemy. Jesus, in those moments, seems to struggle mightily. So maybe my doubt, my fear, my apprehension, my disillusionment, my self-doubt, my role as the older son on the margins, maybe these are embraced experienced and hallowed by Jesus on the ground in the garden, himself caught in a wretched dark night of the soul.
So I have for you today a Lenten invitation. And maybe it comes more like a whisper than some kind of pronouncement. A benediction. A good word that sounds more like a curse. Especially if our orientation remains bent towards the success-driven ways of the world. My benediction will sound like a curse to you. Particularly if you, like me tend to clutch your trophies and goodness tightly to your chest. So I ask that you be struck by a holy discomfort. May your heart be heavy when you pass the wounded, the sick, the hungry, and the imprisoned. May you feel the burden of your sin and that of a broken world. And may the burden be too heavy for you to carry. And in the moment, when despair threatens to crush you, when you would otherwise disappear beneath the surface of the quicksand, may you encounter the soothing balm of grace. Special brand of grace for older brothers like me. You see, this grace, this deep forgiveness, comes not as a reward for those who try the hardest, This grace is no prize for a job well done. It comes instead to the one with the courage and humility to say, I, the chief of sinners, am. And in that moment, when you are visited by that grace, may you find life, hope, healing, balm. Will you stand with me and pray? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer using the word trespasses. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Can we thank Dr. Eric Severson? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Go in peace. You are dismissed.